Uh, well, good morning again. Uh, those of you who don't know me, my name is Brian, uh, lead pastor here, and I'm excited to uh, look at this passage. Uh, this is week 38, technically, but just kind of week two of kicking off in Romans uh, chapters 9 through 10 of kind of looking at these, these chapters, uh, or excuse me, 9 through 11, these three chapters of did God's plan fail? And so I'm not going to recap. There's a, there's a lot uh, that obviously we've, we've looked at in the past, of just looking at the first couple chapters of, hey, this is the gospel, this is the good news, that we are saved by faith through grace, not by works. It doesn't matter uh, who you are, uh, what family you come from, it's by grace grace period and, uh, and then kind of looking at, okay, well, how do we live? How do we live then? Do, do I have to be a good person now that I'm in and, and all that and being like, wow, this is still under the influence of the Spirit and God is still at work in that. And so we, uh, again, are, are going to be looking at chapter, most of chapter nine today. And, and as I mentioned last week, probably one of the most scrutinized, analyzed, loved, hated passages in all of the Bible. And I was just talking to, to Ben Jones, one of our elders, and, and, and it's, it's, ah, man, I, it's just such a weird passage because, you know, when you're, when you're like, uh, you know, in preacher school uh, or whatever you want to call it, and you, you're like, you, you, you look forward to the day when you can preach on this passage, and I feel like, ah, oh, man, it's here. It's, it's here. It has arrived and I don't feel ready. <laughs> no, I do feel ready. I feel like I could spend 10 weeks on, these pa- on this passage alone today. But guess what? This is not a systematic theology class, all right? And so I don't, hopefully we learn some things. There might be some gaps and some holes, and that's okay, right? And I think we're going to see that very obviously today, uh, that we're going to have some some dissonance that happens just within our minds and, and, and that may not ever resolve, and that's okay. Uh, and so I don't want to just keep giving little helps and things that may say, oh, yeah, yeah, that helps me understand this passage when I don't think that's the point of the passage. And so I want to just get into the Apostle Paul's mind. What is the big goal that he has in this passage? And hopefully we all walk out of here more in love with Jesus and more glorifying God because of, of what he has taught us in this passage, I did bring up this illustration last week because it's still going to hold very true this week. That when you uh, are learning to ride a bike, you have to keep your momentum going, right? You got to keep pedaling. You go to a hill. You do something where you got to keep moving because if you stop, you fall over and you and you and you crash, right? And 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 it's a really good illustration to help us with this passage, and and specifically today, probably a really good reason why we don't take this going really slowly, because this illustration would break down, because we would keep falling over and crashing and getting mad at our dads for not helping us, right? Dad, you said you wouldn't let go, right? We gotta keep moving. And so when you when you slow down a little too much, you, you get yourself hurt, okay? And it's not to say you can't, of course you can. Uh, but, it, but it's a thought. It's all one big thought. And so when you slow down, bad things happen. And so, um, and I'm going to read the passage. I'm gonna, so I, I was going to just kind of walk through it. And then I was like, no, I got to read the entire thing. Uh, and, and we'll keep the momentum moving. And then we'll, we'll go back and kind of look at it. So again, uh, Paul's big point in Romans chapter 9, as we looked at last week, is that Israel doesn't always mean Israel, but sometimes it does, right? And context is king. When we read the word Israel, right, and in our political, current cultural minds, we go, oh man, yeah, the nation of Israel and everything that's going on. Listen, we can talk about Israel. You want to you go out and get a coffee or a beer and you want to talk Hamas and Israel? We can do that. That's not this Israel, okay? You have got to understand that. that is, this is not a current political situational thing, period, right? We can go talk about it all you want. It's not this. It's not this. It's not what Paul means by it. So Israel doesn't mean 
is real, but sometimes it does, which we're going to see in one through five. He, he says it like four or five different ways. My ethnicity and my kindred and my people, right? Like their lineage. Like it's like, okay, that's the Jewish race. That is the nation of Israel, old nation of Israel. Um, but then he's going to, in this passage this week, like, he's literally going to say Israel, just because you're of Israel doesn't mean you are Israel, okay? So we're going to keep moving on that. So this week, the title of this passage is, Has God's Word Failed? Uh, we're going to be, kind of, again, like I said, a longer passage, Romans uh, chapter 6 through 29. And I, and I want to just open with this, and I probably have already taken too much time just with introduction stuff here, but I want to, this passage has meant so much to me personally. And I know I, I, there's, there's something about when you're, when you have, when you're, at least when you're a parent or when you experience anything, right? It doesn't matter, you don't have to be a parent to do this. You want somebody else to experience it, and you do your best to explain, right? It could be a, a board game that you just love. You're like, man, let me just teach you how amazing this game is. And people are like, I don't get it. I mean, I get it. I understand how to play, but this is stupid, right? And it's like, no, I just wish I could give you my, my passion for this. I wish I could give you my energy for this. It could be a sport or a team or a book or a movie. For Fill in the blank, right? You just want your, your kids to get this. And I, I remember doing that with my kids. I bought the... I had these little styrofoam airplanes, like World War II airplanes. Remember, you put a little fake little prop and you throw them, right, a little weight. And I had those things taped and I had this whole dogfight scene in my room. And I was like, oh man, my boys, you guys, are you going to love this? And I went and bought a bunch of these things and within 10 minutes, they were completely destroyed, right? And it's like, yeah, you don't get it, right? I can't make them get it and I can't make you love this passage the way I do. But I want to just kind of walk you through a little bit of my journey with this passage, and the first one of just random picture of avoidance, right? Of like, I'm, I'm going to avoid this passage because it's confusing. Um, it, I don't fully understand it. This actually makes me feel things about God that I, make me uncomfortable. Uh, and so I'm actually just going to avoid it. Uh, yeah, it's part of my Bible. I'll read it for my devos, but I'm not going to dig into this anymore because this, this kind of freaks me out a little bit. All right, and so, so maybe that's where some of you have been with this passage. Maybe some of you are like, I don't even know what, what you're talking about. And that's okay too, right? Uh, the other aspect of it is just confusion, right? I read this passage and I read other passages of scripture and it seems to conflict with some of this. This seems to conflict within itself. I, I don't know what's going on. It's, I'm confused. And so how could I ever love a passage of scripture that I don't understand, Right? And it might, it might be frustrating just because like, I, I feel like I should get it. I feel like other people are getting it and I'm not. What's happening and it can lead to confusion, which for sure is part of it. And then um, I know for me, it, this led into then when I really started digging into this, I, I read a, a book by R.C. Sproul. And you know I love R.C. Sproul. He, read a, he wrote a book called Chosen by God. And I read that book and it wrecked me. <laughs> like it, it did not sit well with me. And I remember going into my uh, youth pastor. It wasn't even my youth pastor at the time. He was, a, he was a, the dean of men at my university. It was a weird, weird thing. Anyways, I went into his office and I had a pen and I threw the pen on the floor and I was like, I did that. God didn't make me do that. God didn't tell me I had to do that. I did that, right? And, and I was really struggling with just this idea of determinism of God has already pre-planned everything, so none of the thing we do matters because he's the one that's doing everything. And it, and it made me mad, right? I got angry with God. Um, and, it, and every time I say I'm angry, this is what I always think of this SNL skit. Some of you, I know a lot of you don't even know what this is, but this is Chris Farley, RIP, amazing, funny man. And he... Um, 
He's doing this scene where it's like a hidden camera for a commercial. And, and the waitress comes out and <laughs> says, uh, do you like your coffee? And he's like, yeah, I like my coffee. And, and she goes, uh, well, did you know that what you're drinking is actually decaffeinated Columbia coffee crystals? And so the scene there on the right, he, goes, he looks up and just goes, what? Because <laughs> he's mad that it wasn't real coffee, right? And so the whole thing, it was like this like 2020 uh, episode. And they're like, do you have any idea that to get the response of someone being excited about these decaf coffee, Columbia coffee crystals, there were 219 takes that went bad, right? And so they show this guy of getting really mad, right? That he, that he, and so the whole thing is he gets up and he gets in a fight with the waiter and the chef has to come out and hit him over the head with a frying pan, all this stuff. And then he's being interviewed, right? And they say, Mr. So-and-so, uh, how are you feeling about the entire situation? And he just goes, angry. <laughs> and then, and that's it, right? Like that's the whole skit. It's so stupid, right? But, but at this passage, I know, man, I used to pour over this and I would fume. I would get so mad at God. Like, who do you think you are? This doesn't, this is, this is awful. This is, this is evil. How could I worship you? And I got angry, but thankfully it led in though, it led into a time of Love and embrace. Uh, this was just some random painting I found of the prodigal son returning to the warm embrace of his father. That this passage just oozes the grace and mercy and compassion of God. Um, and so that's my prayer, that we would love him more, that we would know that we are loved um, and that we can trust him more with who he is. I'm gonna... I'm going to go ahead and read the passage. You don't need to stand. It's kind of a longer one. I'm going to read last week just because it's going to flow in, um, and then we will um, we'll jump into it. So here we go. Romans chapter 9, 1 through 5. This was last week. The Apostle Paul says this, I'm speaking the truth in Christ. I'm not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed. I wish that I could experience hell and be cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. They are Israelites, and to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs, and from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ, who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. So here he's talking about the Israelites, he's talking about that ethnicity, that, that group of people, that race, whom Christ is a descendant of them. But now he's going to shift, right? Because did God's word fail? He's going to start it. But it is not as though the word of God has failed, right? Hey, all these people, the nation of Israel, they got the covenants, they had the promises, they, had, they have Christ. But it is not as though the word of God has failed. For not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. And not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring. But through Isaac shall your offspring be named. This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God. The children of the promise are counted as offspring. For this is what the promise said. About this time next year I'll return and Sarah shall have a son. And not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, Though they were not yet born and had done nothing either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls. She was told the older will serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I loved and Esau I hated. 
What shall we say then? Is there injustice in God's part? By no means. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose I have raised you up that I might show my power in you and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then he has mercy on whoever he wills and he hardens whomever he wills. You will say to me then, why does he still find fault or who can resist his will? But who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Well, what is molded? Say to the molder, why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory? Even us whom he has called, not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles. As indeed he says in Hosea, those who are not my people, I will call my people. And her who is not beloved, I will call beloved. In the very place where it was said to them, you are not my people, there they will be called sons of the living God. And Isaiah cries out concerning Israel. Through the number of the sons, of, though the number of the sons of Israel be as the sand of the sea, only a remnant of them will be saved. For the Lord will carry out his sentence upon the earth fully and without delay. And as Isaiah predicted, if the Lord of hosts has not left us offspring, we would be like Sodom and become like Gomorrah. That is the passage. There's a lot. I've got several quotes today from Douglas Moo. Um, there's so much that could be read and said, but I just have a few from him. And I'm going to start off by just kind of recapping here from Moo, and then we'll get into kind of the three questions that the Apostle Paul poses in this passage. Uh, Doug Moose says this, in the first half of verse 6, the transition between the introduction of the body of Paul's exposition in chapters 9 through 11, Paul makes clear that the problem of Israel is at the same time the problem of God's word and ultimately of God himself. For God has adopted Israel, revealed himself to her, bound her up with his covenants, and given her his law, the temple service, and his promise. Do these now mean nothing? Has God revoked these blessings and gone back on his word to Israel? Many Christians, uh, both Jewish and Gentile in Rome and elsewhere, must have thought that this was the logical implication of Paul's radical critique of the Jewish assumption of guaranteed salvation. And if God had indeed uh, reneged on his earlier word, the consequences were dire for more than Jews. For how could Christians uh, trust such a God to fulfill his promises to him, all right? So that's, that's what's at stake here is the trustworthiness of God. And, and, and as we're gonna see, even all the way back at Genesis 15, is, can God be God? Can he still be all-powerful, almighty God uh, if he's not trustworthy, right? He's, his deity is at stake here. That's what Paul's telling us. So what is going on? And we're gonna look at kind of three questions. The first one, even though it's not uh, worded as a question, uh, I made it a question, and that's just this. Has God's word failed? And Paul here is going to say, it is not as though the word of God has failed, for not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel, and not are all children of Abraham because they are his offspring, right? So Paul's first point here in building his argument is as to why has God's word failed, he's going to say, no, 
Well, and he's going to go all the way back to Father Abraham, and he's going, because not every child of Abraham is a child of Abraham. He's going to say, no, no, physically we are, they are, but they weren't the child of, of promise, which he's going to get to, right? So going back to Genesis chapter 15, is God, is he trustworthy, is he true? Just last night, my son asked me, what's my favorite verse in the Bible? Here it is, Genesis 15, 17. When the sun had gone down and it was dark, behold, a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch passed between these pieces. That's the best verse in the Bible. Uh, you got a lot of context there, right? But God is staking his own deity, saying, I, Abraham, I'm going to make a covenant with you. And if I don't do this, then have me be ripped apart like these. I will cease to be God if this covenant doesn't come true. And guess what? The Apostle Paul is bringing up this covenant. God is a God of his word. Why? How? What does he say? On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying, To your offspring I give this land, from the river of Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates, the land of the Kenites, and yada, 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 all these people, right? All this land, right? The point is God's making this promise. To your offspring I give this land. So Abraham, again, building his his point, or excuse me, Paul, building his point, when looks at this and says, but wait a second, there's, there's an asterisk here because the offspring, Abraham had more than one son, okay? He had more than one offspring. And so he starts in verse seven, but not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring. But through Isaac shall your offspring be named. This is quoted, this is a quote from Genesis 21, verse eight. Abraham has another son named Ishmael. Ishmael is the exact same amount of blood, son, as Isaac. But God is going to say, but you're the promise, this blessing is going to be through Isaac. Not Ishmael. Could have easily been Ishmael. It wasn't. God didn't choose Ishmael. He chose Isaac. That's the whole point of this asterisk, right? They're equally sons here of the promise, right? Did Isaac do something right? Was Isaac a better child than Ishmael? No, we're not told any of that stuff. God simply chose the promise, the blessing to go through Isaac. So then when we get back to the passage, uh, excuse me, uh, so, so then Isaac, your option will be named. This means that it is not the children of the flesh or the children of God. But the children of the promise are counted as offspring, for this is what the promise said. About this time next year, I will return and Sarah will have a son. And not only so, right? so he's going to add on to that, right? We've got to keep the pedals moving. We've got to keep the momentum going. Don't, don't get bogged down here in this. But he says, not only so, but also Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac. Though they were not yet born and had done nothing either good or bad, uh, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls. She was told the older will serve the younger, as it is written, Jacob I loved and Esau I hated. These, these are passages, again, going back to, the, to Genesis that are saying, look, look at what's going on here. That this is not about a physical bloodline. This is about promise. This is about the, about the election of God. And again, the Apostle Paul can't be more explicit that neither, they hadn't even been born yet. They had done neither good or bad. Again, did Jacob do something right? Did Esau do something wrong? Did God look into the future of their life and see that Jacob would choose uh, uh, God and choose to follow God and, and that Esau didn't? No, so that's not what we see here. We purely see the election of God happening. And that's why I want to highlight that. Listen to what he says here in verse 11. Though they were not yet born, had done nothing, nothing, either good or bad. And this is the thing. In order that God's purpose 
of election might continue. Right? That, that's his big point, right? And so we gotta, we gotta keep peddling in this story, right? And so he's gonna, he's gonna go back into Romans chapter two, if we, if we can go back, because uh, he's already said all this, right? For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical, but a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart by the spirit, not by the letter. His praise is not for man, but from God, right? So we have to grasp the text in their town. If I'm, a, if I'm a first century Jew and I'm reading Romans chapter 9 and I get to this to say, hold on a second. You're telling me that just because I'm a descendant of Abraham doesn't mean I'm in? Just because I, I, am, I am a descendant of our father Abraham doesn't mean I'm a child of promise? Right? And then Paul's point is, let's go back. Let's go all the way back to the beginning. There were other descendants and sons that were not part of the promise. Right? Because again, this idea of this election in order that God's purpose of election might continue, if I grasp the text in their town, a first century Jew is going to say, yeah, but I'm Jewish. I, I am in. And if, and if you want to be in, you need to join us. You need to become like me. Right? We are the part of God's line of promise, right? If you're Jewish, you're good, Right? Again, Douglas Moose says this, the use of the word election to characterize this plan reflects his purpose in this part of Romans 9 to demonstrate that God's plan had, has unfolded in the Old Testament by a series of free choices that he has made, that God has made. Isaac was chosen, Ishmael was not. Jacob was chosen, Esau was not. By these choices, God has seen to it. That is that fun word of providence, which I would love to get into, but I don't have time. Uh, he, has, he sees to it, God God, by these choices, God makes sure, he sees to it, that his plan to bring into existence a people who would be his peculiar, peculiar possession would remain. If God's plan depended on the vagrancies, the, uh, I wrote it down, what does that mean? Uh, unpredictable behavior of sinful human beings for its continuance, then indeed God's word would have fallen to the ground a long time ago. But God's purpose and history is fulfilled because he himself elects people to be part of that purpose. Keep pedaling. Don't stop. We're not going to stop really. We're going to crash. We're going to get mad at dad, right? He said, we'd, dad, you said we'd be okay. Keep going. You got to keep going. Got to keep moving. So how is this fair? It's the second question. What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? Right? How, how is this fair? Moiganito, by no means. This is, a, this is the most emphatic statement Paul can say. No. Right? Is there injustice? No. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy and compassion on whom I have compassion. So it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. Excuse me. For the scripture says to Pharaoh... For this very purpose I have raised you up, that I might show my power to you, so that in my name I proclaim to all the earth, so then he has mercy on whoever he wills and hardens whoever he wills. I want to emphasize things, because again, you, you can pause here a little bit too long, and you can start to get a little, little angry, a little, a little hot. I want you to look at the emphasis. What is Paul saying? Is there injustice on God's part? Is God unjust by, by choosing, by election? He says, by no means. And then, but what does he say? The, the, the emphasis here is on the positive. I'm going to have mercy. I'm going to have compassion. This isn't hatred and anger on whom I will. He's saying, no, 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 no. 
because he's going to get there. We all deserve it. We all deserve the wrath of God. He said, I'm going to have mercy on some people here. They don't deserve this. But because I love them, I want to save them. Again, um, another quote here from Mu. In other words, the standard by which God must be judged is nothing less and nothing more than God himself. Judged by this standard, Paul contends God is indeed just. Paul does not provide a logically compelling resolution of the two strands of his teaching. God, by his own sovereign choice, elects human beings to salvation and human beings, by a, respons or a responsible choice of their own will, must believe in order to be saved. But criticism of the apostle on this score is unfair. It is unfair first because Paul can accomplish his purpose showing God to be just without such a resolution. Okay, so he's saying God, God is God. He's just. He's going to do what he's going to do. He, he feels like, hey, he doesn't need to say any more. But again, the thing is, he already did. He already, in, his, uh, in, his, in, his, in the book, already talked about this. And so I would contend that he doesn't need to resolve the justice and mercy here in chapter 9 because he's already done it. So let's go, let's go back. Let's consult the biblical roadmap. Let's go back to Romans chapter 1. And the apostle says this, For his visible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made so that they are without excuse. Jew and Gentile, those with the law, those without the law, religious, irreligious, in some way, shape, or form can perceive there is some greater deity out there and I have fallen short of who that God is. It's all I know, but he's saying that's enough and they're without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking, their foolish ways, their hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. And we started worshiping creation rather than the creator. I want to finish this quote by Moo because he brought up two points, right? The first one, it's unfair first because Paul accomplished his purpose. Uh, Paul can accomplish his purpose, showing God to be just without such resolution. And it's unfair, second, because no resolution of this perennial, perennial, perennial paradox seems possible this side of heaven. What is he talking about? He's talking about um, a paradox here, which he brought up. I can go into the Bible and I can look at Romans 9, right? And I've got some Calvinist friends, I don't really know of any in this room, who are like, Calvin! Calvin! We're Calvinists, right? Who are like, we're gonna, this is it, right? If you're that way, come talk to me. Let's calm down, okay? Because I can look at the Bible, I can analyze it, and I can tell you, chapter nine, look at this, God chooses, period. The problem is, it's not period, right? There's another human responsibility that we can look at all over the place in the Bible, and a matter of fact, Paul's gonna do it next, next week, right? He's gonna clearly demonstrate that the, the Jews missed out on the promise based on their works. What? Well, hold on a second. That doesn't make any sense. How can God do that, right? You can't have your cake and eat it too. Is it cake or a cookie? What is it? Whatever. It doesn't matter. It's cake, right? Paul is saying, no, no, you actually can have a cake and eat it too. In the same bite, you can do all the same thing. I don't know what I'm talking about. I know I've shared this before, but this is the double slit theory, double slit experiment, right? that uh, scientists forever thought that uh, light was just wavelengths. 
And, and then they realized like, oh no, there's actually matter. There's, there's weight to this, right? And so someone came up with this double slit experiment and you take a flashlight, you have a piece of cardboard or paper, it's got two slits in it, and you'd think on the back sheet there would be then two slits. But it doesn't work that way. There's all kinds of little reverberations and, and particles that go all over the place. And when this was discovered, from what I've read, physicists lost their mind because it doesn't make sense. It doesn't make any sense that light can be waves. I can go over here, I can write books on why waves, light is made of wavelengths. All this data, whoop, look at all of it. See all of it, this is all I have. And then, boom, this comes out and they're like, holy cow, we can now start writing books on that light is also made of particles. These two things, apparently in the scientific community, does not make sense. But you know what does make sense? That in the beginning, God said, let there be light. And I think by his demonstration of his power said, you think you got light figured out? Try this one. You think you got salvation figured out? You think you're the one saving yourself? Yeah, 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 try this on for size. Whoa, you think it's only me doing something? Whoa, whoa, whoa let me show you something, right? There's a theological, because my theological mind, right, kind of struggles with some of these things. But we have to keep pedaling, right? There is a cognitive dissonance. There's an antinomy here. There's, it's not in harmony. There's, there's a struggle here. And, and, and those of us who might be a little bit more analytically minded or, or you, uh, there's a lot of uh, engineers in the room, you're like, I got I to gotta be able to put it in a box. I got to figure this out. And the physicists are like, I get it, man. Yeah, it doesn't make any sense. It's not supposed to make. It can't make sense. I'm okay with that, right? So, so we gotta be careful not to try to put God and salvation and his sovereignty and human free will in a box. Doesn't make, <laughs> doesn't make any sense. And you know what? I'm really glad it doesn't. I'm glad I cannot figure God out. If I could figure him out, he wouldn't be God. I would be smarter than him. And I don't think I'd make a good God. So we're gonna keep moving. We gotta keep, keep, keep pedaling here. We could stop here for a long time, but we're not going to. How does he find fault? Third question here. And this is, this is when I started to get angry. Here it is. You will say to me then, why does he still find fault? For who can resist his will? But who are you, O oh man, to answer back to God? Well, what is molded? Say to the molder, why have you made me like this? Right? This is where I got angry. Decaf Columbia Coffee Crystal angry. If we don't have a choice in it, how in the world can I be held accountable? It doesn't make any sense, right? How can a God create a mug, mold a mug on a potter's wheel, and then go, why aren't you a wine decanter? Go to hell. Okay, well, Paul, we talked about fairness. Yeah, I get it. He's God. Yeah, of course, he can do whatever he wants. <laughs> I'm struggling with this. I'm getting a little angry here with this. Then he continues, though, has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honor, honorable use and another for dishonorable use? Continuing, he says, what if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make his power known, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory? We could talk about this, and maybe this doesn't settle everything in your heart and your soul when it comes to a passage like this, but this, is, this, this has helped me a lot in understanding this passage that everyone, 
Everyone deserves destruction. Everybody does. And we say, well, that doesn't, again, doesn't seem fair. We've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, period. God doesn't owe us anything. He did the same thing with the angels and he gave them free will for a little bit and they said, screw you, God, I'm out. I want my own independence. I want my own free will. And you know what God doesn't do? He does not save some of them. He does not go to the demons and say, you know what, I'm gonna change you into being a vessel for glory. No, you are prepared for destruction. And with humanity, he could have said, all of you are going to be destroyed, but he doesn't do that. Out of his mercy and compassion, some will be saved. One last long quote here. This is the last one, I promise. Doug Moose says this, embedded in these questions is the objection that God's sovereign act of hardening jeopardizes the biblical teaching about the justice of God's judgment on people who resist him. For only if people are responsible for their own actions can God's judgment be truly just. Yet Paul's teaching about sovereignty of God and hardening appears to remove such responsibility. Before analyzing what Paul does say in response to his objection, we do well to note what Paul does not say. He makes no reference to human works or human faith, whether foreseen or not, as the bias for God's act of hardening. Nor does he diffuse the issue by confining God's hardening only to matters of salvation history. Quite the contrary. Verses 22 to 23 make it more explicit than ever that Paul is dealing with questions of eternal destiny. In fact, Paul never offers here or anywhere else a logical solution to the tension between divine sovereignty and human responsibility that he creates. That he affirms the latter is, of course, clear, and that we must never forget that Paul will go on in 9.30 next week through 10.21 to attribute the Jews' condemnation of their own willful failure to belief. <laughs> they didn't believe. It was, therefore, human responsibility, and yet somehow God is in control of all of this. Paul is content to hold these truths of God's absolute sovereignty in both election and in hardening and of full human responsibility without reconciling. There's tension, the antinomy, this cognitive dissonance. There's a song I used to, when I was a kid, uh, I had a CD player. Anyone remember what those were? A little Walkman. Um, and I used to fall asleep listening to the soundtrack to Jurassic Park. And <laughs> go figure, like, whoa, didn't, didn't know that. Didn't know that about you. You like Jurassic Park? Yeah, I do. Uh, and and there, was, there was this one particular song that almost every night as I'd be, I'd be drifting off to sleep, it was this beautiful piece, but it would end, that song would end with this with dissonance, right, a, 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 a chord that didn't resolve. And as human beings, we love resolution. It's right, so I don't have a keyboard or whatever, but if you play, not always, but if you play two notes right next to each other, they, 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 they're, they're tense and they, they reverberate and it doesn't sound right and we want a resolution. We want to hear that chord fixed and it feels good. A little bit of tension is good, but it's got to resolve. But in this song, it just goes, it's beautiful and da, da, whatever. And then and all of a sudden just, uh, it's, like, it's like every instrument in the, in the orchestra just plays something as loud as they can and, and random notes and it's like, what is that? And then song ends. And it would wake me up all the time, right? Because it's like, what? You, gotta, you can't do that to my brain. You can't just leave it in dissonance and not resolve it. And Paul and Moo are saying, it's okay. We're gonna keep this dissonance going here. We're not going to solve this because God is in control. So 
again, even us whom he has called, not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles, as indeed in Hosea, those who are not my people will be called my people and who are not my beloved will be called beloved. He's saying this is not just for the Jews, this is for the Gentiles also, this is for everybody. And the very place where it was said to them, you are not my people, they will be called the sons of the living God. That's us. That's the rest of humanity. That's mercy and compassion. He didn't have to do that because if we're like, oh yeah, I understand that God chose the Jews as his people, but then, it, wait a second, well then that means the rest of us are out. Right, so is he just for that? Okay, he's saying, let's back it up here. And Isaiah cries out, concern Israel. So again, an, an Israelite prophet is gonna say, though the number of the sons of Israel be as the sand of the sea, only a remnant of them will be saved. And the apostle Paul is saying, church, we are now part of that remnant. That we are now Israel in the sense of we are the chosen, promised people of God. For the Lord will carry out his sentence upon the earth fully without delay. And as Isaiah predicted, the Lord of hosts had not left us offspring. He would, we would be like Sodom and become like Gomorrah. If it wasn't for the mercy and grace and compassion of God, we would be utterly destroyed. This is the good news. It is. This, I mean, when you read this, again, you can still, man, it seems negative and negative, negative. This is mercy and grace that God gives to all people. Everyone who, on their own, say, God, I need you and I want to put my faith in you. And he is good and just and righteous to forgive us of our sins. Why? Because he is the one who punishes himself and pours his wrath out upon himself so that we can be free. That's the gospel. It's the good news. This is why my Calvinist friends, and I guess I would consider myself one of them, like to call this doctrine the doctrine of grace, not the doctrine of election. We call it the doctrine of grace because it is. I had a really hard time reconciling a lot in this passage, but what Paul is trying to get across is that not all Israelites are Israel. This is good news that we Gentiles and the Israelites still are saved not by works or by birthright. And that this has always been the case because of God's sovereign grace, because of God's mercy. We once were not a people, but now we are sons and daughters of the living God. We can dwell on the fact that it just doesn't seem fair. But it's not fair that some are saved at all. We can dwell on the fact that, Dad, it feels like you, you let me go a little too fast here. Seems like, I, I don't know, I, I don't quite understand what's happening or we can dwell on the rich, undeserving mercy of God, not based on works, not based on merit, that God didn't look at me somewhere down the corridor of time and go, Brian is gonna choose me, therefore I choose him now before he's even born, before I've seen him do anything good or evil because I never would, I never would. I would always choose myself. I would cho always choose evil. And if there's something that is a, that about me, I'm smarter. I, I, I'm able to understand this. I'm more sensitive to the idea of the gospel. Then it's me and I do it. And I'm saved because I'm just a better person than you or my friends who reject the gospel. It's not based on merit. This is the beauty of the gospel. It's not based on the color of my skin. It's not based, God's mercy, on the depth of my education or the lack thereof. 
My salvation is not based on my socioeconomic status. It's not based on marital status. It's not based, thank God, on my ability as a parent, and on and on and on. We can fill, the, fill those blanks in over and over and over, and that's why this passage is good news and is the doctrine of grace, because we deserve to be vessels of wrath. And God has said, I'm going to see to it that some are made for glory. That's the good news. Level ground at the foot of the cross. And the beauty, again, of this by Paul quoting Moses and the prophets and narratives and historical passages, he's letting us know that this has always been plan A from God. The Gentiles being in is not plan B. Did God's word fail? No, look at this. It's always been this way. All the way back to Father Abraham, God's word did not fail. Time is running out, but I do want to just, I'm going to just real quick, Cap this in. I want to look at what happens if we uh, slow down a little too much. Okay, so crash the bike with me a few times here. This is what happens when you slow down and you, keep, you get a little too entangled with this. One is determinism. Determinism is frightening. When you start thinking that you, have been, that you are a robot, that nothing you do matters, that everything that you do has been predetermined, uh, we, we get ourselves in a world of hurt. Now, I will say, that every choice you make is determined, but it is determined by something, and that something is you. <laughs> I have self-determination, I have choices, but what and makes my choices that are free, good or bad? Mm. God helps us eventually get to that good side. But determinism can be a terrible, terrible thing of looking at that we're just robots. We are justified by faith. Not by works. We have to believe. And God gives us that choice. And so when we start getting into that, we can cause a lot of damage. God's just going to do what he's going to do anyway, so who cares? What's the point? Here's a point. The other one, briefly, is overemphasis on covenant community. I don't, where, where was that? Let me, let me explain. There's a couple different perspectives, which I'm not going to get into right now just because I don't have the time. And this isn't systematic theology class. But what's called the New Perspective on Paul or Progressive Covenantalism. There's a lot of books written about this stuff. You can look that up in your own time. But they would say that, well, see, not all Israel is Israel. But in order to remain in Israel is that you need to remain a covenant people of God. You need to remain under the promises of God. You need to act a certain way. You need to live a certain way. And so then there's still there's an emphasis then on works. <laughs> Right? Like, hey, you, you want to be a part of a covenant community? Great. Here's what you do to stay in, to remain in, to be actually Israel. And Paul over and over and over says it's not about works. It's about what God has done. And, and then they would argue back and say, yeah, but you have an overemphasis on individualism. You have a Western mindset when it comes to salvation. And reading this passage is not about an individual making a choice to follow after Jesus. It's a covenant community and a people of God. And I remember the argument that I would make back to my friends that might have been in those camps is I would say, do you remember during uh, COVID? Remember that? There was a thing that went around. During COVID, I remember what president it was. 
Obama? I don't think so. Was Obama? <laughs> no. It was Trump or it was uh, Biden. I don't remember who it was. One of these, one of these presidents uh, said, hey, we're going to write a check, right? We're going to write a check to every whatever American that's over the age of 18, right? You are part of this community of Americans, and therefore everyone, this blanket statement, everyone who's over the age of 18 is going to get a check uh, from the government. Cool. See, that's what it means. And I would say, yeah, but you have to understand, I got a check in the mail addressed to Brian Silver. <laughs> it's still an individual response to the covenant gospel. Sure. I got to make that choice. And I can't do anything other than rely on the grace and mercy of God. That's what's taught over and over and over. And, and again, if you fall, if you, if you wait and you, you, you sit too long, you miss, you miss the grace of God. You start looking at as God and a bully, as, as uh, unjust. But I'm telling you, get, just get to next week because next week he's going to make it explicitly clear that we need to believe. We need to have faith in God right on the back heels of Romans chapter 9. Let me just close with this gospel application. There's a quote from Tim Keller this week. It's a gospel application. I don't know if I've ever quoted uh, someone for an application. He used to say this, I think, after, after every sermon. And if he didn't, I know other churches that have done this. But he says this, the gospel is this. We are more sinful and flawed in ourselves than we ever dared believe. That's what Romans 9 makes very, very clear. The entire book of Romans. You are, you are more sinful and flawed in yourself than you ever dared believe. And yet... At the very same time, we are more loved and accepted in Jesus Christ than we had ever dared hope. That is the prodigal son. That is the prodigal daughter. The individual who says, I, I am hopeless, I am gross, I am disgusting, I am so sinful. And we look up and we see the father running to us with open arms to show mercy and compassion when we don't deserve it. That's the gospel. Every week at Hope, we have communion. And so we have these elements, the bread that represents the, the body of Christ, the juice that represents his blood that was shed for us, that he takes on that wrath of God that we deserve. He does it on our behalf freely. The Bible teaches that all we have to do, even after reading the passage that we just read, I'm going to tell you, as a Calvinist, all that you have to do is believe that and you're good. And if you say, yeah, I, I believe that. I follow Jesus. He's my king. I worship him. Then I would love for you to take these elements. You don't need to be a member of this church or any church, but be a follower of Jesus. And I would love for you to take these elements with us. And, I, and, and maybe there's some of you, right? Uh, going back to those emotions. I don't, I don't know where you're at. Maybe you're fine with this whole thing. You're great. Maybe you're encouraged. Maybe you're angry. Uh, maybe you're confused. Uh, maybe you're just like, I've been trying to avoid this whole thing, and so I was just listening to a podcast the whole time. The whole time. Uh, maybe, okay, it's fine. Have an honest prayer with God. Right? We're at the, it's one of the beautiful things. When you read through the Psalms, some of the Psalms are gut-wrenching. And it is someone crying out to God. And that maybe that's us this morning. Maybe that's you this morning. I'm hurting. I'm confused. I'm struggling. Tell God that. He sees you. He hears you. He knows you. And again, just remember that you are more loved and accepted in Jesus Christ than you had ever dared hope. Let me pray. The worship team is going to come and they're going to sing two songs. They're going to sing Psalm 130 right here, right? 
that uh, Christ has set his Israel free. And when we sing that, when you hear that, know, based on this text today, we are included in that word Israel. Right? Just because I'm a descendant of Israel doesn't make me Israel. And just because uh, I go to church doesn't mean I'm now in. Right? It's a, I need to believe. Christ has set his Israel free. Let me pray, and then we'll do two songs, and then we'll be dismissed. Father, thank you for our time together this morning, looking at a very hard passage, a complex, difficult uh, passage, wordy uh, times this morning. But I pray that something would just land in our hearts. This morning, we'd walk out of here refreshed, encouraged, um, seeing you, God, as gracious and merciful, even in our confusion, uh, that you would just help us uh, to be able to take that cognitive dissonance and learn to like it, learn to love it, Uh, because that's how you've revealed yourself to us in Scripture, the same way you do to us in nature by just light itself. And so God, the same God that said, let there be light on the earth, you have also said, let there be light in in the souls of sons and daughters of you and your image bearers because of Christ, that he comes in to light up the darkness. And so, and in you, there is no darkness found. So God, we love you, and I pray that uh, we would just honor and glorify you now through these elements, through singing, and it's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen.